please let me know, okay? And we'll extinguish them as quickly as we possibly can. So uh, we're going to be doing a part two today of where we were last time. I want to stay in Matthew's gospel today. I'm toying with the idea of doing a Christmas message the next two Sundays. So pray for me to have clarity, if you will. I've already put some things together. But I think this always fits Christmas anyway. Every message fits the birth of Christ. It's, it fits the, the resurrection of Christ. And so I just come with that attitude in mind anyway. Uh, so we want to be in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12. I went back and forth numerous times on the title. And this is about my third or fourth version of it, but I think I've settled on this, and that is the value of a person to God. The value of a person to God. So stand with me as we read verses 9 through 14. Had planned on getting through much more, but um, I think the Lord will just have us stop here. So Matthew writes, Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. All right. Amen. You may be seated. Now, just to catch you up, uh, last time in our part one, if you will, which is a different title, I talked about the Lord of the rest. In that, we learned that the Old Testament law of keeping the Sabbath was really no longer, is no longer applicable for us today. And that's because... It was designed by God, even way back in the Ten Commandments, to point to the day of rest that would be coming. And that day of rest is not just a day specifically, but it is the day. It is the time, the the essence of rest. And that rest is Jesus Christ. And so now we understand Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Amen? That's where we were last time, that we find our rest in him. Now, we gather today like any other day on a Sunday because that's when the early disciples gathered. It was from the book of Acts as they uh, saw the Lord resurrected and they saw him ascend into heaven that they began to fellowship and pray and worship and share in communion together. And so that's why we meet on Sundays. Otherwise, we would be meeting on Saturday. That was the actual Sabbath day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, or so the truth is, every day is holy to the Lord. So as much as we consider this to be a holy moment as we are gathered together in the presence of the Lord, and it is, no question about it, tomorrow morning when your alarm goes off, it's just as holy because the Spirit of God lives in your heart. And so we're not to compartmentalize days of rest or Sabbath times or anything of such. We rest because Jesus is our Lord and His Spirit lives within us. And so We don't look to anything else. Now, today I want to conclude that particular part by looking at these verses in 9 through 14. In this case, though, I want to approach it a little differently, as you've already heard, and that is to see the wonderful mercy of Christ and the value that he places on people. So let me give you what my third point would have been in last week's message, and that is people are so valuable to God, he will set aside his laws 
for the sake of showing mercy when it's needed. Let me say that again. People are so valuable to God that he will set aside his laws for the sake of showing mercy when mercy is needed. Okay, I want you to hear that. And here's where I'm getting this. Look with me again now at our text. Departing from there, in verse 9, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, interestingly, we've not studied Luke's gospel, but Luke says of this event that it happened on a different Sabbath from the one we had studied last time. And so what seems to be just a continuation of the same day really is not, according to Luke. This was another Sabbath day. So you remember that particular situation. It was when the legalists, as I like to call them, they've become that to me now as I've been doing my study, they believed that it was wrong to do any work on the Sabbath. You remember we discussed that a lot, even to the point where crushing grain in the palm of the hand was considered work. Blowing away the chaff was considered winnowing, as ridiculous as that may sound. And so the Lord was showing them that the law was not greater than helping the innocent get what they needed, which is why he said what he did in verse 7. If you'd known what this means, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. Speaking of his disciples right there, look, they're hungry. Their body still needs food. The Sabbath is with them, in other words. The legalists wouldn't have understood that, but Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6. This is what God has been proclaiming, and you've missed it. And so he was clarifying that truth for them. Well, this situation is very similar to that, but in just a different way, where the legalists believed that it was wrong not just only to do work, but if you can imagine, even to show mercy to someone who is in great need of mercy on the Sabbath day. Now, grace and mercy, you're very familiar with those terms, and most of you already know the definition of those. The very simple definition simply is grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. That's a good way to remember it. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, and we really like that. Right? That's a very popular term for us. But once again, the problem is their tradition had set all of this thinking up erroneously in their minds. Again, it wasn't the law of God that had said this, but it was their traditions. The fact is, the law didn't forbid healing at all. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says that, and I'm talking about the actual laws that God gave. There was no law forbidding healing. There was no laws forbidding the giving of medicines or the acts of mercy on the Sabbath. And so make sure that you understand that, because sometimes people will say, you see, Jesus is even violating his own laws here. No, he wasn't. They were violating the laws because they had created traditions that were wrong according to what God had established. Jesus came to point them to what their law really meant. And so he was in no way breaking any law. What he was doing, though, more fundamentally now, was to help them to see the error of their ways. And so he asked them really a more accurate question, a more fundamental question, almost like he's calling them to him and he's saying, so... Is it wrong to do good on a Sabbath? That's really his question. In other words, which one is really more godly here? Is it more godly to hold on to the traditions of man or to actually do what's right for the sake of a soul that really needs the help? And he's asking that question that way because he knows that in the heart of a legalist, and I want you to hear that term again, 
because it's important to understand that condemnation of grace and mercy is foundational. I'm talking about for the legalist. There has to be a pushing away of grace and mercy in the mind of the one who lives by law. I don't want you to hear me say that the law is bad. The law is good. The law is what points out our sin. But in a human sense, in a sinful sense, the law can become so black and white that grace and mercy are the antithesis of law. They just don't fit. Black and white says either it's right or it's wrong. There's no middle ground at all. And so when grace and mercy are brought into the picture, in the mind of a legalist, that can become very blurry. It becomes gray. And the only way to affirm what they hold dear to their own hearts is to be able to build boundaries and walls based on tradition. And Jesus was saying to them, your traditions have caused real problems. Now, thankfully, and I know you're as glad as I am about this, God is not blurry on what's right and what's wrong. God is very clear. There is no misunderstanding in his mind, knowing that grace and mercy are far better in its place than even keeping the law, specifically to those people who repent of their sins. That's the purpose of the law, you remember? Paul said that very clearly to the churches in Galatia. The law was the tutor. It was what showed me my need for Christ. So in that sense, it was very good. Now, Christ has come, you know, to satisfy the demands of the law against sin. In fact, Paul would write this in Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we said last time, when Christ came, you remember Judaism in its religious form ceased to exist. It was not necessary anymore in its religious forms, not the Jewish people as a people, but in its religious forms, Judaism ceased to exist in the sense of making a soul right with God because Christ had done that. And again, the truth is God has always been merciful and gracious. Some people have said, well, when you look at the Old Testament, God is very black and white. He's very straightforward. It's not until the New Testament that God has changed. Well, the truth is, beloved, God never changes and God never will change. Scripture also tells us that. So it's not that God has changed from being gracious and merciful. He's always been that way, and that's clear throughout the Bible as you, speak, as you read through it. If he were not, no one would ever be saved. The reality is, if God were not gracious and merciful, even in the days of Adam and Eve, they would have never been living the next moment after they were tempted to sin. God would have destroyed them and he would have been very just in doing so because he had said as the creator of Adam and Eve, the one who is right in all of his ways, said don't do this, but they did it. And so if God were not gracious and merciful, Adam and Eve would have never existed and guess what? You and I would have never existed if God really were nothing but black and white, at least in our way of thinking. And so praise his name that his desire is to be merciful and to be gracious to us. And we need that. God is not desiring just to condemn people because they violate something, but to save them from the wrath of what is real law, from the judgment that law brings upon us. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, God is working his plan. God knows what he's doing, but is patient towards you. Why is God patient? 
Because he knows we don't get it. Not wishing for any to perish, but what? For all to come to repentance. That's what God wants. In fact, in John 3.17, you know it as well as I do, right after John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son, right? But John 3.17 says, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's heart is to apply mercy and to show us great grace, or he would have never sent his son. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Now, on the flip side, let's be careful and clear that as much as God is gracious and merciful, we should never think for a second that God will not deal with sin. And that's very important for us to do that. And I'll talk more about that later. He's not going to overlook anyone's sin. That, in fact, is the point of the gospel. That's why the gospel must be preached. That's why God shared the gospel with us, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was the payment, hear that word, for our sins. Jesus came to satisfy all the demands of God against us, which is why, in turn, God can now be merciful and gracious. He's always had it in his plan, in his infinite wisdom to do so, but because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, now God can be gracious to us as we don't live the life that we're supposed to live. In fact, if you notice, all the people showed mercy that Jesus showed mercy to were the people who were looking for God to forgive them. He didn't do that for everybody. For those people who weren't looking to repent, he didn't forgive them. He didn't show mercy. He didn't show grace. Now, in a sense, he does. In fact, the Lord says that he allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But often that's really because of God's people where he's blessing. And so there is a sense in which God shows a general mercy to humanity up to this point. But there's coming a day where God will deal with the the sin of every individual. Which is why Jesus said, if you remember earlier in Matthew 10, when you disciples go out into the community and a person will not receive you into your home, shake the dust off of your feet and go on. What is that? That was a pronouncement of judgment. The Lord was basically saying, I'll deal with that in my own time for the people that reject you. But for those people, there is no substitute for their sin. And if there's no substitute for their sin, then the only thing left is judgment. God is black and white when it comes to that. But because of his gracious offering of his son, his demands for our sin have been paid And so we are able to go free. The reality is, beloved, if you want a simple way to think of this, anytime you and I go to the store or we go to the restaurant, let's say you go out with friends, uh, people that you care about, and and the owner of the establishment comes and says, hey, hope you enjoyed your meal. Here's this little thing. Don't leave until you see me. What's he saying or she saying? Here's the bill. Somebody owes the payment. So who decides who gets this? The Lord's saying basically the same thing to us. The payment for your sin will be made. Your decision will be, will it be my son who pays the debt of your sin or will it be you? The reality is somebody's going to pay the debt, either you or the other. Now Jesus is going to make that much clearer as we get into the latter part of the chapter. And so we'll leave some of that for that, but you already understand much of it, but just let's, let's suffice that for now. In this particular situation with the legalists, however, instead of listening to the Lord of the law, which is what we've established now, and turning to him for mercy, 
the law became their Lord. In fact, that was pretty common. It was up, the Jew in his own way, especially the religious leaders, began to see the law as being their God. They would often even say, the law is the Lord. And so they got lost very much in that. And when the law is your Lord, you're now under the weight of the law because that by definition is what a Lord is. And when the law is what it is, it drives you then and so you've got a decision to make. What do I follow here? Well, in their case, you have to get rid of anything else that competes with your God. And so they decided that they would get rid of Jesus, which is why Matthew says they questioned him. But this was very clearly put to us by Matthew that it wasn't so they would learn from him. That wasn't their intention. That's far different. It's quite different when a person wants to hear from God and really has questions and wants to learn so their life can be better. But that was not their intention here. Look at verse 10 again. Matthew says they did this so that they might accuse him. They had a great ulterior motive. In other words, they had to trap him. He was defying everything that they were holding sacred by their own traditions. And he was getting in the way of what they really wanted to worship, again, which was the law, and probably themselves. You know, when leadership begins to take on authority and power, you have to keep feeding that machine, or the power and the authority go away, and the, the sinful heart is so hungry for attraction and those people to follow it, and things to follow it, and whatever to follow it, that it'll do whatever it needs to, often letting go of what's righteous for the sake of what it can gain for itself. And so Jesus even later will say, the reason you're like this, you legalists, is because you really worship your true father, who is Satan himself, of which they would even want to put him away more fully for that. Now, to clarify his purpose of how they had missed the point of the law, Excuse me, let me jump back here because my page just decided to jump into something that I didn't want it to do. That's the dreaded thing of uh, technology these days. Boy, it jumped all the way to the very bottom here. And I write all this down so I don't have to memorize it. Here we go. To clarify the purpose of how they missed the point, Jesus challenges them now with an illustration that they couldn't deny. And that's just so beautiful about the mind of the Lord. He just knows everything so well, which is our fourth point. People have more value to God than anything he has created. Okay? He'll set aside his own law for mercy when mercy's needed. We see this example here. We're continuing on with that. But then also he's wanting them to know that people have more value than anything he has created. Notice verse 11. He says to them, okay, what man is there among you who has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, in context, the reason that Jesus is saying that that way is because it's believed through the writings of traditions and others that this actually became a real tradition, this being the fact that the legalists or people of Judaism were taught and began to teach that it was okay for personal reasons. Understand that. If I believe it's a personal situation, I can violate the law, which in this case would be if a sheep fell into a pit, that's a pretty personal thing. This is an animal that you need, and so it's okay if you violate the laws of God, but you better not do anything else. 
And so Jesus hits them with this. But that's what happens when a person believes and lives by legalism. You follow me on this now for just a minute, and I think you'll see this to be the same way. People who hold on to legalistic living hold on to that because it's what they believe will be right until it affects them negatively. This is the problem with law. It's good until my situation is hurt by the law. And so I'll just change it or bend it or whatever to make sure that it fits me well so I don't have to suffer from it. And many of you have grown up in legalism. Numerous people have told me over the years that they grew up in legalistic homes or legalistic churches, either under their parents or their grandparents or the pastor or some guardian, and felt the effects of rules that negatively hurt them in their own opinion. In fact, how many of you have ever been a part of a Christian school that had rules and regulations? And I'm not arguing against. I hope you're hearing that. I've already said that I know that God says that rules are good, but how many of you all have been under Christian schools that have rules and regulations only to be broken when that rule affected someone in place of authority? Or their child was in a place uh, of uh, being affected negatively, or their grandchildren, or even the person who put the rule in place was affected negatively. And I don't want to hammer that too much, but that's a very sensitive issue for some people. Well, that's exactly what the legalists were doing here. And that's nothing more than hypocrisy. hypocrisy, Sorry. And so Jesus calls them out on it. He's wanting them to look at their own hearts and say, look, you have created something here that is creating a value for yourself that far outweighs what you say the value of a person is. Notice this question. Verse 12. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Now, that's a stinging question in his day, as I already said, because that was a pretty important animal. But basically, Jesus is saying, if you say it's okay to break one of God's laws when it affects you negatively for an animal that you own, does that mean that your animal has more more value to you than God or to the person or, or what a person is? Well, sadly, in Jesus' day, animals had become more important than people. You not only see it in the way they treated their animals, and there were reasons for that. One was because the animal was so essential for life. It would be like somebody giving up our cars or whatever, our homes or things like that, and you understand that. Animals were necessary. But the other side of it is, a lot of times animals are just a lot easier to love than people. Right? I mean, they don't complain. They just kind of do what you ask them to do. I mean, most of the time. Unless you have a 12-year-old chocolate lab, like we do. It's amazing to me how his hearing is perfect when the cookie is placed in front of him and it's time to do some feeding. He'll hear you call him every second when that happens. But when you ask him to go outside because we're leaving, it's all of a sudden like he becomes deaf. So it doesn't work perfectly this way, but... For the most part, animals never really complain. They don't argue. You know, they are excited when you show up and and they kind of just do their thing as they should do just because they're an animal. And so the truth is animals really are treated by a lot of people with a lot more respect than people are. That's why they isolate themselves and just live their lives with their pets. 
There is a reason why, and you've heard this phrase, people have said over the years, dog is a man's what? Well, why do they say that? Where does that come from? It comes from this very thing. Because to many people, animals are their best friend. You've known the religions of the world. Hinduism is probably the chief of all of these things. Let me quote something for you here. A fly, according to the Hindus, is not killed because it is the reincarnation of some unfortunate human being of past ages. So it's like, let's give them a little bit of mercy, that poor soul. Rats are not killed for the same reason. They're allowed to eat and contaminate food supplies without any interference. Cows are considered sacred and given what food is available, while human beings are allowed to starve. Interesting, isn't it? But a beggar is not given food because it would interfere with his karma and prevent him from suffering his way to the next highest level of existence. Sad reality. And you know, beloved, the truth is, even in our country, people are often loved and respected, often, I should say, love and respect their animals more than they do their own people. And you could get that already. I got on the website of, of PETA. You know what that is? PETA.org, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And it was a lengthy article, but the last part of it I thought was intriguing. It said the founder, Ingrid Newkirk, said that when it comes to pain, love, joy, loneliness, and fear, a rat is a pig, is a dog, listen to this, is a boy. Each one values his or her life and fights the knife. Okay, I'm not going to judge this person, but it does become pretty clear that there is in the mind of people the feeling and the belief that an animal has the same value as a living soul that God created in his image. But that's not what God said. God never said anything like that. In fact, when he made the covenant for Noah, when Noah came off of the ark, in Genesis 9:3, he said to him, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I give the green plant. Now, what God is saying there is that I'm giving you permission even to take into your body an animal. Now, that would be a situation of value to some people. And I'm not trying to be insensitive or unsensitive here to anybody who's sensitive to the treatment of animals. I think it is important to be clear, though, that in God's mind, he gave permission to take part in the animal kingdom when it came to the needs that we have. Nowhere did God give the permission for us to eat other people. I mean, now I'm not going to argue about life-threatening situations and that kind of thing. We've watched the movies before. But we know that in a general sense that's true. Later, Jesus would affirm the same thing in Mark chapter nine, uh, 7. He declares, Mark says, all foods are clean. Not to mention Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them, proving that there's value. There's great value to the animal kingdom. But notice this. Jesus turns around and says, Are you not worth much more than they? What's he doing? He's saying, listen, animals have value, but human lives are more valuable to the, to the God of the creation. 
Unfortunately to the Jew, though, even though he knew full well that God had done this, they would have known these scriptures. These were the leaders. These were the guys who spent time in the Hebrew schools studying and memorizing the text of scripture. And they would have known that God placed a higher value on people than he did on animals. But yet they still treated people with very little respect, which again is proven by the difficulties that they were enforcing upon people under them. And this is a great situation here mainly because they were more concerned, as we've already said, about keeping their traditions. Now, my question is, it comes to me continually, is it what kind of evil is that? What kind of evil is it that promotes the welfare of something valuable, yes, in its own way, but above the heart of another person? Where a person is denied the help when it's available to them. For example, in keeping the law or for the sake of the law, or making money, instead of what's best for the person. I'm going to share some things with you that are very intimate to me, and I want you to hear my heart as I share these. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawmaker. I'm not a politician. I'm a preacher. And my purpose is to share the truth of God's word. And so I don't want to offend. That's not my point here. Uh, For whatever I say, you can take it with a grain of salt if you like, but I feel like it needs to be said, and that is what we're seeing in our day, beloved, is exactly what the legalists and Jesus were dealing with. That's exactly what's happening with COVID, where many doctors have said, I took an oath to help people, and I'm telling you that drugs like ivermectin work, and there's proof that it works that it will at least greatly reduce the virus's effects. But for some reason, the FDA won't approve it. And we ask the question, why is that? Well, if you look at the FDA's website, which I did, it says of the ivermectin, it can interact with other medications. Well, my thought is, so does every other medicine. Have you ever watched the commercials? If you have this, then take this. But then the guy reads at lightning speed. But the side effects are... You listen to the commercial and you're like, well, man alive. Why would I ever take that? Well, let me read to you the quote from the FDA. And and please, I hope you know my heart. I'm not anti-government. Government is good. Law is good. We are to be under government. But we're also sinful people. And this is Jesus' point. The title of the FDA website is, Why Should You Not Use Ivermectin to Treat or Prevent COVID-19? Here's the quote. Many inactive ingredients found in products for animals aren't evaluated for use in people. Okay, that makes sense. Or they are included in much greater quantity than those used in people. Okay, that makes sense too. Here's the thing that troubles me. In some cases, they say... We don't know how those inactive ingredients will affect how inter- ivermectin is absorbed in the human body. And I struggle with that. And I'm just giving you my heart. You can decide for yourself what you feel. But yet they approved a vaccine that they had no understanding about either. Now I understand many of you may want to get up and leave. And I hope that won't be the case. I hope you'll just hear my illustration here for a second. I have a loved one in my family 
who works for one of the big three companies as a chemist, as a research analyst, as a product developer, and has so for many years. And this person said to me, do not take that shot. Every protocol for product development has been violated. It has been pushed through. We have no idea what it's going to do. Now, as you're sitting there and your heart's beating harder because you may have taken one of the big three, just understand that you're still under God's control, right? So hear that. Your days are numbered by the Lord, not by a shot. My point is not to argue about ivermectin or the big three or to make some political statement. My point is to simply say, if ivermectin is approved by humans, isn't a human life more valuable than keeping the law if it isn't approved? In other words, if there is a knowledge that it could help, then let's speed that through and figure out a way to help people. But the reality is, beloved, there is money in this. There's fallacy of the sinful heart. When what really should be happening, no matter who it is or what really the situation is, let's forget COVID. Let's talk about abortion for a minute. That's another subject. In the, in the name of the law, children are aborted. Why? Well, because of the health of the mother. Okay. I get the argument. But there's a lot more reasons behind that. It's because there's money in it. And especially for the people making the laws in a lot of cases. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I don't know that. I'm simply using an illustration here. But let me read you something. This came from CNN 17 hours ago. And the article is titled, If the Supreme Court Curtails Abortion Rights, It Could Flip the Script on the 2022 Midterm Elections. Who cares? Who cares if it flips the script? We're talking about human life. This is a baby. This is a soul created in the image of God. Now, I could read you the article, but you could go look at it yourself. And that's all it talks about, is how badly this could affect the federal government and who gets into office. What about the baby? Now, you're, you're smart people. I don't have to share this with you, right? This is like preaching to the choir here. The point simply is, what kind of society does that? Well, a society that's sinful. Well, guess what? That's us. We're all sinful. The point of the Lord is, Jesus is a perfect display of treating people who needed his help when they needed the help. But the leaders didn't like it because he was taking over their stuff and he was taking money out of their pockets. But our Lord, listen, our Lord came because of the value of a soul. That's why he came. And he got in a lot of trouble for it. For you and me, I guess we could just simply say, we're to follow his example. We say to people, we live, we vote, we act based on the value of a soul. Not because of what it's going to do for you or me, but because of what God says. So while the legalists were stuck with their proverbial foot in their mouths, Listen to what the Lord says. 
So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He takes their tradition that said, oh, for personal gain, if it fits your story, you can violate the law. Oh, so it is good to do some things on the Sabbath. So why are you condemning me for helping this man or anybody else? So he turns to the man with a withered hand and he says in verse 13, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and he was restored to normal like the other. In other words, both hands are now the same. Now, in my sick humor, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I think it fits. I wonder a little bit what the legalist of our day would say to Jesus when he's just trying to make sure that the soul is really healed. I wonder, would the FDA have approved Jesus' healing in Jesus' day? Again, I'm not arguing. Don't, Don't hear that. I'm simply saying to us, what is the greater issue here? Is the soul of the person greater? Or is it my pocket or my ideas or my concept or my thoughts or my own life more valuable than helping another soul. And you would think, I would think we would, I would hope I would, in the presence of the Lord, seeing a miracle, say, ay, 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 I've been wrong. Look what he just did. This guy's okay. He must be who he said he is, but that's not what Matthew says happens. Notice in verse 14, it made them furious. The Pharisees go out and conspire against him. Now, what you don't know, and I'm not going to take time to do, is that they conspire with the Herodians. They were the people who followed Herod, the people that they were vehemently opposed to. This is how sin works. These guys hated each other, but yet in this moment, they came together and said, we got to get rid of this dude because he's messing up the game for both of us. Luke 6, 11 says, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Instead of repenting and being thankful that the Lord, the Messiah, was there healing a poor man of some debilitating issue, they were filled with anger because they couldn't get their way. And again, beloved, that's the sinful heart. If he can't change Jesus to who it wants him to be, it either removes him from their lives or makes him a different Jesus. Whatever fits better. People either build a box around Jesus and live by their self-made rules or they make Jesus so merciful that they can live any way that they want. After all, he'll forgive me. He's merciful and gracious, so I can pretty much do what I want and I'll be okay. Or if they can't make God what they want him to be, they'll conspire against him to get rid of any conviction of righteousness that they may feel. That's what people do too. They feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And instead of listening and repenting to what they know is right, they stand their ground and say, I know God says this, but I'm going to do this. Why? Because that feels too hard. And I'm not going to do it. And homes are broken. Businesses dissolve. Nations fall. 
Because guess what? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So Jesus is simply proving again that traditions men create are more important than saving a soul because it's their gain. But thankfully, even after a person rejects so much love, and please hear this, Jesus is a faithful servant to his Father. And we're going to hear about that next time. Always willing to forgive and always willing to save even the most wicked of souls. That's a loving God, a gracious God. And we're going to see that last time, next time. So let me just ask you, where are you with Jesus? I mean, imagine yourself there in that day. Jesus shows you what he shows you. You say, surely I would never be so stubborn, so staunch in my belief system that I would reject this one who could do something that no one else could do. Now, mind you, they didn't have days of cell phones and imagery and all the fancy computer graphics. This was the real deal, and they couldn't, re- couldn't deny that. Do you struggle showing mercy and grace? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the legalist, and you're like, no, it's my way or the highway. And you messed up, so get in your box. I'm not going to show you mercy. I'm not going to show you grace, especially after how you treated me. Why should I do that? Even after you've been shown so much mercy. Isn't that the amazing part? We're so willing to accept the mercy of the Lord and the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. But yet when somebody offends us, I'm not going to forgive that person. Are you changing Jesus of the Bible into the Jesus who won't point out your sin? He's just all lovey-dovey? He really didn't need to save you anyway because you're not that bad? I mean, that's for other people. Jesus who fits what works for your life without anything needing to change in you? There's lots of Jesuses. It's kind of like you just go down the list and pick the one you like. But not the real Jesus. So the question becomes, who do you really serve? Is it the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus you want? He's only one. He's Lord. And his way goes. Our job is to repent and to say, yes, Lord, I will serve you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, I'll be the first one to admit, this is tough. This is tough. It's tough stuff to hear. It's tough stuff to read. It's, boy, it attacks the flesh the way we think, the way we feel, the decisions we make, the way we treat one another. But Lord, you've given to us such great mercy and grace in the midst of our befuddlement in life. And so we would ask you this morning to, first of all, be so ever thankful that you are a God of mercy and grace that you have such a willing heart that you would take the most wicked of souls and you would offer them forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would help every soul listening to my voice to hear that one truth. 
no matter what they've done or where they've been or how life has been or how they've even rejected you and turned you into another God, that you would show them how much value they have to you, that you would come to give your own life for them. And in turn, Lord, teach us to live lives of repentance. Teach us to not create division or poke fingers or point fingers, but to love each other with the same kind of love that you first loved us with, which was to show us mercy and grace. Lord, keep us united together, even though we have differences of opinion and thought. Help us to remember that each of us in these chairs and listening online are much more valuable than our thoughts, our opinions. And Lord, may we look to you for the answers. May we pray for our government. Pray for the FDA. Pray for those that are making decisions, our court systems, and those that we feel so adamantly against in our hearts. Lord, that you might keep unity within your church. Lord, uh, we'll do everything we know to do with your help, and we really do need your help. Because without you, we'll get off on our own traditions and our own paths, and we'll create things that will just cause a bigger mess. So, Lord, we submit to you. I pray that every person hearing my voice will do just that as Lord and Savior. You are Master. You are God. Now, give us wisdom, Lord, to face, face these days. Help us to navigate the struggles. Help us to navigate the differences and the feelings and the emotions. And Lord, remember that on this time of year is when we celebrate when you came to the earth to display the most humblest of hearts that anyone could ever display. Being born as King of kings and Lord of lords in a dirty, filthy, nasty manger. A barn simply because the souls of men and women had that kind of value.